Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Sister Helen Prejean. She is a sister of St. Joseph and is known around the world for her ministry accompanying men on death row and her tireless work to abolish the death penalty. She's the author of Dead Man Walking, which was adapted into an Academy Award-winning film and an opera. She also wrote The Death of Innocence, and her latest book is a spiritual autobiography called River of Fire. I wanted to speak with her today to talk about the death penalty, but also to talk about her conversion, if you will, to being open to social justice, her awakening, if you will. And when I say the word awakening, of course, I'm thinking of the term woke, which is so bandied about in our culture. And the way it's used in our culture sort of is perplexing to me because as an African-American, as a Christian, I understand awakening to the gospel, awakening to Jesus and what he wants of us in our relationships with fellow human beings, that this is what it is to be woke. You're woke to your human person, the interconnectedness of the human family. You're woke about the suffering of the least among us, and you're animated by love for them to do something about it. So when I hear the term woke, that's what I envision. But so often I hear it used in a derogatory way. I hear it used mockingly. It's almost like a slur. And that's, (laughs) as as a believer, as a Catholic, that's really disappointing to me. But I also understand that there's some people who use the term woke to really mean domination and to mean disagreement with other people. And that is surprising to me and disappointing to me as well. But I believe to be a Catholic is to be woke. And I think Sister Helen Prejean's story really exemplifies that. She talks about being humble. She talks about listening. She talks about learning from the least of us. And I think there's so much wisdom in that. And I think there's wisdom in once you encounter Jesus and engage deeply with him, with his humanness, with his divinity, and what he asks of us, how could you not be woke? How could you not be awakened to the gospel truth? How could you not be awakened and animated to love as he wants us to love? So I hope you enjoy this episode with Sister Helen as she talks about how she awakened to the injustice of the world how she had a full conversion to Catholicism, if you will, at that time, because she became more than just a prayer. She also was a doer. And I think that's very encouraging for all of us because there is a place for prayer in the spiritual life, just as there is a place for action and acting on behalf of the least among us and being animated by love to do that. And so talking about her awakening, I found very refreshing, and I hope you do too. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, and America is committed to hosting very real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today, and that's unique. It means you'll find different opinions and perspectives here on the podcast and in the articles published at americamagazine.org. And if that's meaningful to you, as it is to me, then get a digital subscription to America. It gives you access to all of our content, all of those conversations, and opinions that are informed and nuanced. 
So go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Sister Helen Prejean is up next. Sister, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's great to be with you, Gloria. Let's <laughs> you go. Know, Let's go to it. Are you ready? We're already in our pre-chat. We started. We right, on it. We did. But I need people to know that when I read your book, I felt like I completely could relate to you in so many ways. I'm an extrovert. I like good food. I'm a Southerner. I get it. I'm a Catholic and totally tuned into Jesus that we can pray and act, you know, out of love for him, right? That we pray and act, you know? And so I really appreciated your honesty in writing about your experiences and your awakening, if you will. But first things first, I know there's a Hurricane Ida. Everybody all right in your hometown of Baton Rouge? Everything all right? Our state is devastated. A million, 1.3 million people lost power. All eight Major electrical transmission stations were blown down. The wind was over 100 miles an hour. This is the third major grid failure in the United States. California, it happened. Texas, it happened. Louisiana, it happened. And boy, do we need infrastructure. I'm hoping with the catastrophe, it'll be an impetus to get this infrastructure bill passed because we need it. Individual states can't handle this. And we also going to need to figure out a way that we got to get this circuitry underground. You can't have yeah. these big, tall towers standing there and 150 miles an hour winds come and hit it. But the suffering's terrible. And it's not just New Orleans, but it went all the way down Bayou Lafourche, all in the south. Mm-hmm. These little towns, Galliana, La Rose, cut off, and all these people lost. They not only lost power, but with the strong winds. Only 40% of them maybe are there with their houses completely intact. So it's just, and it's climate change, and that's a big waking up thing we got to do. Well, you know, sister, people are very doubtful of climate change, don't really believe it, having a hard time accepting that maybe there's something they could do in their part of the world that affects somebody else in the other part of the world. We just change how we consider and do things. So that's a hard sell, you know, for some people on the climate change, but I really don't see how it's a hard sell when you can see on TV the flooding, the suffering, and imagine what it's like to have no power, no water in Louisiana in August. This heat would be horrible too. But listen, you know this thing how you began with the people who doubt things? Yeah. In this thing of being in the Jesus mind to work for change, he always talked about that wheat and weeds come up together. You always can have your doubters, but that's not where we start. We start, what's the truth? And every time we get a chance, we talk about the truth of what's happening. You're always going to have the doubters, but I don't believe we should start with them ever. COVID vaccinations, any of that. You got to move with the positive. Where's the kingdom Mm -hmm. of God sprouting up? Where do we see it happening? And I do that with the death penalty. I do that with climate change. I do that with getting out of Afghanistan. We got to really keep getting the truth out there. And that's what I've been doing for these 30 years about the death penalty. And thank God for that. And I have to say, I was thinking about how your life, even if may, I don't know if you agree with this or not, prepares you for where you are now. I keep thinking somebody like you had a natural gift 
for speaking and speaking in front of crowds. Who would have ever thought that they would be transformed in this way to serve God so effectively, to be able to speak this truth to so many people and to speak it from a place of compassion and witness with your own eyes and also being able to understand because of how you grew up, how people who are not yet there may be reacting to it. So tell us a little bit how about growing up in the 40s and 50s in Louisiana. Well, I just want to say first, you know, whenever we wake up to something Mm -hmm. that's true and big, always I call that grace. Amen. And it has a lot to do with what community we're associating with. And if I hadn't been with the Sisters of St. Joseph and gotten an excellent high school education at St. Joseph Academy, Mm-hmm. And by the time I was a junior in high school, I was winning these oratorical contests. I was learning to speak. And of course, I'm young and I'm all in the ego <laughs> thing. Oh, look at my trophy. I came out first. I mean, that's a natural growth process. I mean, you know, but yes, but that ability to speak. And when I'm doing interviews, like with the media, I'm mm-hmm. very relaxed. It's like a conversation. I always treat them with great respect. Tell them the stories, knowing they got a hard job to do, too. And so it's education. And then Louisiana, you know this, with storytellers. If you're sitting around (laughs) in the backyard with them boiled crawfish and you're going to be out there for three hours. That's right. If you're not talking and telling stories, well, then. What you doing? No, that's it. (laughs) I mean, talking and eating goes well together, you know, in Louisiana. So I see that as providence. But then God used me, is using me. I really feel it. You know what I love? Pope Francis mm-hmm. said, God is an energy that passes through us. Because, you know, we all have these concepts of God. How does God allow suffering? All those kind of discussions you get into. But yeah. it's the energy of love that passes through us. And see, I know some stuff now because I've been there. I've, I've been in the execution chambers. I've been with the mm-hmm. victims' families. And you mm-hmm. got to share your experiences How many times have I stood before an audience and I've just said, let me tell you what happened to me because we want to hear each other's experience. So and then River Fire was a great chance to reflect on a lot of things and waking up. So, I mean, with whole Black Lives Matter happened, George Floyd, people at home from COVID watching nine minutes and 26 seconds of a black man being killed by a policeman with his knee on his neck. There is a waking up going on in the country. Black Lives Matter. And then I can tell the story when finally I awaken that I need to be involved in justice. And moving, Gloria, it was just a 16th of a mile that I moved Mm. from the suburbs of New Orleans to St. Thomas Housing Projects. And the whole world was different. It was like another country. Everything was different. Isn't that amazing? And then African-American people became my teachers. Here's one more little white lady coming in here. Come on, we're going to wake up. She's got goodwill. We're going to teach her. And there was a great group, Barbara Major, Ron Chisholm in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and they had a workshop called Undoing Racism. It's the first time I heard white privilege. I'd never right. even heard it before. But you didn't react all upset about it. I've met so many Catholics that are enraged by the term white privilege. But as I, you just were like, you just had never thought of it until somebody laid out certain things that you don't experience because you're white, the things that you don't worry about because you're white. How can we help people not feel like when they hear the term white privilege, automatically assume that we mean 
that they're the devil. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get what you mean. To me, Glory, the thing is, anybody mm -hmm. that objects to white privilege and sees that you're trying to put white people down or whatever, there's something lacking right away in their life. And it is, mm -hmm. they do not know close at hand the suffering of black people. They don't know the history. They don't have black friends. They don't see what happens to black people with the police. They don't see mamas trying to raise their kids on this pitiful welfare. They don't know about childcare. They don't know the suffering. There's a lack. And then they take offense. Well, hey, yeah. and he's got this book, White Privilege, I mean, uh, Fragility. Yeah. And that's why I was so glad to wake up because the African-American people in St. Thomas Housing Projects, when I moved there in 1981, became my teachers, these patient, good people. I mean, I'm in the Adult Learning Center and I'm seeing young people come in. They had been in the public school. They only had one more year. They were a junior and they couldn't read a third grade reader. How could mm. you be in school and be a junior? And I realized the two-class system, I'd always been part of the Catholic private school system. Or right. people coming in like Miss Ruby, Gloria, she was 75 years old. And she had worked in the fields and cleaning white people's houses all her life. And she wanted to learn to read the Bible before she died. Mm. And that's what me and Miss Ruby, we'd get that Bible. And she was really intrigued by Moses, how he could go mm. up that mountain. He could go in that tent. He could talk to God. She said, how did he do that? He'd come down, his face all lit up and stuff. He had to put mm -hmm. that. So we dug into it with Moses. And Miss Ruby, that's she's 75 and she's learning wow. to read. That made me so angry and it humiliated me because I said, I may appear virtuous like I'm doing good stuff, but look at me. I had excellent education. What does it mean? When you're made to feel dumb, you don't know how to read. What's going to happen to this kid? He gets his GED at the Hope House Learning Center. And how is he going to get a job? And what's going to happen to him? Right. Privilege. Right. Privilege, 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 all along. Cushion, resources, all along my path. Well, I thought of the story as I thought about the people in New Iberia. Shocking to some, probably, to know that there are people living on sugarcane plantations, much like their enslaved ancestors, making earnings and still not getting cash and being confined to using their credits at only one store, no car. This is not freedom. Okay, and then how they treated the sisters that had come there to educate these people. It was really something for people to think about. We're not talking about a hundred years ago. No. We're talking about in the, you know, near present. No. Uh, it was really, uh, was I think, 70s for people and 80s. Reading, yeah. That is not that long ago, right? Yeah, Gloria, I'll tell you, this just, this is what I mean by the grace of being awake, you know, because mm. once you realize something is systemic, that's the thing. Mm. You know, that's what George Floyd, people saying, well, I was one bad policeman. And if you haven't mm -hmm. ever had bad experiences with policemen, you're going to tend to buy that thing of, well, that's one bad apple. Because you don't right. have any experience of anything systemic. I, I right. have a heavy foot. Gloria, I can't tell you the number of speed. <laughs> okay. No, I'm not kidding you. But I'm a white lady. I know how to talk to people. I'm talking with those policemen. And then if I do, God forgive me, pull out the nun card. They Catholic. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to get off. Okay, we can have right. a great conversation. I'm not scared they're going <laughs> to kill me. Look at the difference right. in that experience alone. So it's understanding Indeed. the systemic. And then God bless the New York Times for publishing the 1619 Project. Because we have, a, as a nation, need to go back and understand 
people don't understand inherited wealth when you're white. We don't understand the laws that kept just even the GI Bill after World War II. White people right. could get the loans, could get mortgages, could buy houses. Black people couldn't. And could you not, pass right. that on from one to the other. Right. And you don't understand, well, why don't those black people don't get a job? We don't understand at all how far back it goes and what it does to generation after generation. What does it mean not to live in a nice neighborhood like Geraldine Johnson in St. Thomas? She said, sister, it's like we're in a reservation here. There are drugs. Mm -hmm. There's violence out here. People are killed all the time. I can't move with me and my kids. We got gentrification going on all over this city. I can't afford to move. And one of the things I learned, Gloria, was that poverty means you don't have choices. It limits your choices. And where you are in your neighborhood and how your kids are going to grow up has a lot to do with everything. It really does. And I will say also, you know, the factor of race, even for middle class, upper class black still comes into play. I remember now I had an Ivy League, finished an Ivy League school, went back to South Carolina to get a job. Ooh, their faces when I walked in. (laughs) Oh, they were like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. No, this oh. is not, we thought she would be somebody else. I mean, I had my, yeah. my resume and everything indicated everything but a black woman. So coming in, I could see the faces and knew I was not going to get oh, the man. job, even oh, though God I was it. qualified. So that's part of why I had to leave the South oh, to go find man. a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And white people, we don't have any experience of that. We don't have people like us, like me with the death penalty, or they disagree mm-hmm. with us. And, oh, no, I ain't talking that radical nut. But it's never <laughs> right. simply because of my color. And right. what is that like, Gloria? You don't know, you know when you I, walk in a room right. how you're going to be received. You don't know if it's a safe place for you. I mean, when you go, even when you're traveling, when you're going into a restaurant, you you really are like, okay, am I going to be running for my life out of here? I, and I'm saying this to somebody alive in 2021. Man. This is not imagined. You know, I recognize that I'm not safe everywhere that I go in these United States. That's just a reality. And it would be naive and dangerous for me to assume that I ever will be because I have a child. I have a husband. I, you know, these are just, it's just reality. And we could say it's not fair, but that's the world we're living in. Yeah, It can be hard for some people to come to grips with that. Right. Right. And I think, like you said, people have no grasp of history of the effects of individual choices to sin. I mean, in your book, when you talk about, I mean, I, even this people don't know this about our own church, that you say at your parish, you like Black people had to sit off to the side and couldn't even get communion to all the white people were done. So it's such a different, like, you know this now and, and thinking back, but to say that to somebody now, they just can't fathom it. And, and much less can they fathom, well, what is the effect of that thinking how has that affected the church in the United States? But you know what, Gloria? Here's the thing is I experienced it about how grace wakes you up. Okay. And I have a feeling grace wakes us up. Sometimes we can look back and say, man, I sure wish I'd learned that earlier. What was I uh-huh. thinking? What was I doing? Anytime we wake up is a moment of grace. So Amen. look at all my experience. We even had servants' quarters in the back of yeah. our big two-story house in Baton Rouge. And mm-hmm. Ellen and Jesse lived in that house and had their own separate toilet. And mom mm-hmm. and daddy were always kind. Right. And daddy helped them, Ellen and Jesse, get property, get a house, help Jesse get a job. 
Mm-hmm. But didn't under I never questioned, well, why is it that all the white people going up to communion and black people? Because culture, culture gives us eyes. Culture gives yes. us ears and ways of understanding. Well, honey, this is the way it is. Is It's better if the black people and white people stay away. From, and you're a kid. And you just right. accept that. Even when I joined That's the right. Sisters of St. Joseph, and here we are now, white women, sister teachers going out of school, and we had black servants mm-hmm. at the mother house. Yeah. So there was Willie in the yard with Sister Mercedes, and there was uh, Lily Mae with Sister Joseph Claire in the kitchen. That's mm-hmm. the South. White people yeah. are the teachers and in power, and black people are the servants. I was just so glad when I woke up. I was just so Amen. glad. And maybe part of what I can do as a white woman, waking up is to share with others here's how i woke up maybe you wherever you are in your life and a book can help people do that when you read a book mm-hmm. you don't have to debate with anybody you're quiet you read the experiences you use in your imagination you can go there but sister you know one of the things that struck me is you had after y'all's conference and the sister got up and talked about jesus and went in the direction you were like oh you know, and how you sat with that and you tumbled with that and you thought about it and then you came up with this plan and they were like, that ain't realistic, but you still stuck with it, right? Before you ended up moving over that, what is it? You say one sixteenth of a mile over into the black community. I kept thinking of the struggling with it, that that you thought about it, you engaged with it. And I think that also that was shown to be something that you had when you wanted to discuss everything that you were learning. But this wasn't just some abstract thought, but it was because you wanted to love Christ and grow a relationship with him that you took seriously what you heard that day that led to your awakening. And I thought the more people can hear this and want to engage meaningfully with Christ and what he says and his humanness and his love that we should be able to, you know, hold on to his hand and say, Lord, God, me, help me with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know? I'm, I'm getting what you're saying, Gloria. Let me make it concrete of exactly what that, I call it the lightning chapter in River of Fire. Mm-hmm. So here's mm-hmm. the thing. I mean, religion, I was a prayerful nun. I was pious. I wasn't one of those mean nuns slapping the kids. I loved them. <laughs> right, right. Seventh right. and eighth graders. I loved them. Loved right. them. And, mm-hmm. and so then the bubbles start rising up in the pot, in our community. What Mm -hmm. does it mean to be nuns in the world where there's so much injustice going on in the world? It was a real struggle for me because I was into retreats. I was in spiritual discernment. I learned the Ignatian method. And then we had these sisters like Sister Alice Marie and Francine that had gone to New Iberia, working with plantation workers. They come into the meetings and they say to us, we can't just be kind to people. We can't just pray for people. There is systemic injustice going on in our state. We got to be in there. And I was resisting that. So here I am in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Maria Augusta Neal gives it with three days. I wasn't happy about this lady coming because she was one of the social (laughs) justice ladies. She said, we're going to be with her for three days. We captive. I'm going. (laughs) And we staying in the dorm. The girls were away for the summer from St. Mary of the Woods. I'm going three days. Maybe with the grace of God, I can get out free. Made it through the first day. Made it through the first day. And then she announced at the end of that first day that she was going to talk about Jesus. And I said, bring on Jesus. We're going to have a little spirituality in here. Because she'd only talked about the rich countries of the world, the poor countries of the world. Statistics. Statistics alone didn't change me. So she announced she's going to talk about Jesus. 
bring on right on King Jesus. We're going to have some real spirituality here from the Gospels and Jesus. And I can tell you the line. So here she goes. And Jesus preached good news to the poor. And I thought I knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. Blessed are you, you know, that are poor. You know, great is your, you know, I just thought poor people suffered, but they were going to get a great reward in heaven. It was nothing in there that it was God's providence and God's will. I'd never questioned it. And then she said, integral to Jesus's message to poor people is that they would be poor no longer. It was not God's will for them to be poor. It was systems, human systems. And we had to get in there. And I, I sat in my seat, riveted. My body didn't change, but it was like kaboom. And I mm. went, I've been living out of, I mean, with goodwill, praying for people, yeah. being kind, but I just didn't get it about the whole systemic thing. And see, to undertake systemic change is much harder. It's easier yes. to pray for people to be kind. But if you're going to change the system, that means you got to get in there with the community. And and it's a long slog and a long haul. And you got to learn as you go. Yeah, I did the first step. I moved out of the suburbs. I stopped doing the retreats. And I moved in among the African-American people. I had yeah. everything to learn. But I was in a place of humility because I'd been so shaken that it took me yeah. so blooming long to get it. But sister, here's something I hear that you say, are saying that is to me so important. You went in there to learn. You had such a different attitude, I think. You were like, there's something these people can show me and teach me. When sometimes I hear people talk about stuff and it's as if they need to go in there and save these people themselves. You know what I mean? It's a different yeah. thing to go in and interact with people from a position of, I want to learn from you. You can teach me there's something I can learn and it all. I mean, here you were all educated, you know, from good background, graduate school, and you went in there among the poor and said, yeah. I can learn from you. Yeah, you know, that's a deep thing with the Dalai Lama and, and all the traditions. Oh, humility is an openness to learn. Everybody can teach me something. And when you get that superior thing, oh, I'm more intelligent than you, or oh, you use bad grammar, or oh my God, look at these rednecks coming up from Louisiana, man, they won't get Mm -hmm. the back. And that superior attitude can just Mm -hmm. be in a course more easily in those of us who are educated and all. But I knew I needed to learn. That's when I read the life of Martin Luther King. And I began to write in my journal, I'm learning stuff. That's when I first met Amnesty International and learned about human rights. And then I went Mm. to hear this talk of this guy, Doug McGee, who had been with the Spankalink execution in Florida. And he had actually Mm -hmm. handcuffed himself to the governor's gate to protest this execution. And he had only learned about what was going on with the death penalty in Florida because he was a photographer. He was going in to take the pictures. That was his book when he wrote it. Somebody's got to take the pictures. I heard him speak. I said, he would shackle himself to the governor's gate and he would go to jail. What's it like to believe in something with such fierce fire? devotion that she'd be willing to go to jail. I'd never experienced anybody like that. And that pushed me. So what am I willing to suffer for? What do I need to learn? And then that's how, in fact, I mean, I kind of fell into the death penalty all while Tim Robbins was writing, working on the film that Demi Walker keeps saying, 
the nun is in over her head. The nun is in over <laughs> And the nun was. I had everything to learn there, too. I didn't know anything about it. I hear I write this man. I never dreamed two years later I was going to be in the execution chamber with him and telling him, look at my face when they kill you. I had no oh. way. I just thought I was going to be a pen pal. I was an English major, and I could send some nice poems. Shows what I knew. God had other plans, but you were willing, huh? You were willing, though, once the opportunity presented itself. And then one of the things that I think about is that you mentioned in your book how you were in the airport, Martin Luther King Jr. stood behind you right after he left Cicero, Illinois. And when you turned around and asked who he was, and just the tiredness on yeah. his face and him asking for prayer. To me, when I read that, I thought, that's what it is to be in the thick of it, to try oh, to witness the gospel among our people to try to witness the gospel among human persons who are resistant to it, resistant to the point of throwing bricks and bottles and spitting. And Cicero, Illinois is highly Catholic. So I also thought about how many in that crowd were faithful as Sunday mass going Catholics railing against, you know, civil rights and integration. Oh. And I'd read, uh, had spoken with a professor from the College of Charleston, Professor Matthew Kressler, who studied the history and stuff and saw the letters being written to the archbishop refusing to go to mass with those Negroes. How yeah. dare you? Oh, yeah. People of the same faith. And so we start to see how, you know, if we really start to break it open, we start to see how the evil of racism infiltrates and corrupts the human family and how we as believers who say we believe in God, we believe in the dignity of the human person. How could we, you know, honestly be silent and comfortable? How could we not engage? That's and right. even understanding how that kind of stuff spills over into the criminal justice system, one that negatively impacts the poor and people of color. And you saw that and see that up close with the application of the death penalty. No, and I wove that in, you know, and I wrote Dead Man Walking as I was learning. That goes into that book. Because mm -hmm. people look at the death penalty and they say, well, look, kind of look, roughly breaks down 50-50 on death row. You got white people on death row. You got black people on. What they don't know is the status of the victim that was killed. Overwhelmingly, it's when white people are killed yes. that the death penalty sought. And then when you yes. start getting into that, you go, wait, there's a selectivity here that prosecutors are using when they go for the death penalty. And now mm. we got enough data of 40 years of practicing the death penalty. And we can clearly see that when the Supreme Court put as its guideline to guide juries that it wouldn't be arbitrary and capricious, they said for the death penalty, you're only supposed to select the worst of the worst murderers. Yeah. You have any idea what that means, worst of the worst? No, we, it's such an unclear criteria. And right. then it's coupled with discretion of prosecutors to go for death or not. You put those right. two things together. No secret that 75% of all the actual executions have happened in the 10 southern states of practice slavery. And always Absolutely. look in there. It's because white people were killed. That's the priority. That's a death that yeah. matters. Killing a black people. Now, what do you do when you get that data inside you? Either it makes you prophetically angry. That's yeah. wrong. And we got to change it. Or you get paralyzed. Or you yeah. just keep it at an intellectual level. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, it's racist. Yeah. Or when you hear that the Supreme Court in the McCleskey decision verdict that they came about this black man in Texas, they were really clear 
by then that it's the whiteness of the victim that determines when the death penalty sought overwhelmingly. And they actually mm -hmm. said, now this is our Supreme Court. Well, clearly there's racism in the criminal justice system, but it's inevitable. It would be right. too costly to change it. What does that say? And then you start coming awake. Our own Supreme Court. I used to always think if something was the law, well, it was yeah. moral, but it's right. not moral. It's not. wrong. Yeah. So when you get in there with people, you got to dig into all that stuff. You got to dig into the Constitution. You got to dig into the Gregg decision and how death plays out. And then you point. You just say, what made President, former President Trump with his attorney general, William Barr, able to kill 13 people before he left office? How did that happen? Right. There had been 17 mm -hmm. years, no federal execution. Why did right. he do that? Because he could. He had exactly. that power. And then you start looking at what does it mean to put this kind of power in very human hands, politically driven, mm -hmm. biased, all that kind of stuff. And I got to say, there's been a, bit, a lot of dialogue I've done with my own Catholic church on this. It took 1,500 years of dialogue for Pope Francis to reach the moment in August 2018 where he officially changed the teaching of the catechism, the Catholic catechism on the death penalty. Up to then, the church had always upheld the right of the state to take life. And right. UN right. Declaration of Human Rights, no, you can never give governments a right. The right to life is inalienable in people. But it took the dialogue within the Catholic Church because you have to have people getting in there, having the experiences and feeding the dialogue. No, no, no. So I'm in there with a lot of other great people that we had part of that dialogue with the bishops, with the Pope, with everybody. No exceptions. We'll be back in a minute. I will say, sister, I, when you talk about this, I have had with very, quote, learned priests this discussion about the death penalty, because I'm pro-life, you know, sacredness of the human person from conception until natural death, no in-betweens, nothing a person can do to undo that dignity, okay? No matter how they live, and they, that's innate to them because they're made in the image and likeness of God. But when I've talked to these priests about it, I just remember one priest just going on and on saying, you know, inadmissible is not a moral category. He was then talking, you know, all theory about it. And I said, but Father, Father, wait a minute. You're talking as if these people have good defenses. You're talking as if the system itself isn't corrupt. And then he just sort of offhandedly says to me, well, of course, all that this assumes they have excellent, legal, aggressive defense of their life. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, as as know, if everything is stacked up. And I was like, what? I was like, do you? I was yeah. like, that's a wrong assumption, Father. All of this is built on the pie in the sky idea that everything is fair and people have competent legal defense, like they could even afford it, and that the investigating offices are not corrupt. I said, that's a far reach to bet somebody's life on for such a permanent decision. Boy, you got that right. Of the state to execute someone. I think of George Stinney in South Carolina, 14-year-old. Oh, gosh, yeah. Horrible, horrible. But you know what I'm guessing, Gloria? In what? compassion for that priest, he never mm -hmm. had been anywhere near death row. He had never right. talked to anybody that was thrown into the criminal justice system and how poor right. the defense often is. These poor public defenders overworked, underpaid, may have a hundred yeah. cases. 
and included yeah. in, but he has no experience of that suffering or how that works. His life is filled with doing liturgies, visiting the sick, and the priestly things as he understood, just like, and I have compassion for him because I did my nun thing for all those years, you know, teaching the right. kids, praying for people, you know, asking God to help all these poor suffering people and not lifting my finger. I didn't know. And see what we need, and I love this about Pope Francis. He says, mm -hmm. we who believe in Christ need to be the field hospitals on the edges yes. where people yes. are suffering. And you don't have any experience of that. You do that pie in the sky. So, well, at sky. least we got good defense. We got the best court system in the United States. Because you don't right. know any better. You're talking out of ignorance when you do that. Right. But, boy, mm -hmm. you bring that priest into that execution chamber. You bring him into any case of people on death row and just talk to 185 wrongly convicted people who convicted. were lucky enough or graced enough to get out alive. See, stories change us because that pie in the sky stuff, well, at least they had a good lawyer. The opposite is true. And so when we're entering into conversations with people, I'm sure you did your best in that conversation. You said maybe you caused that priest to think, I don't know. No, I, I didn't cause anything. I was dismissed. <laughs> I'm I was dismissed. I mean, he's an academic. What did my little lowly non, you know, advanced degree in any kind of religious studies. No. Jesus would not approve of what you're saying right there. You're little, little, I'm just telling you, sister, that was the attitude. <laughs> that was the attitude that I was on. Like, how dare you? How dare you think you can converse with me? <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, I'm a dare. I'm a dare right yes, now, yes. Father. But still, you're right. I really think an invitation to him to actually sit and minister to those yeah, people yeah. would do him somewhere. a world of good. Absolutely. I absolutely think yeah. so. Because when you have to look somebody in the eye and you actually have to see the reality of it, I think it softens you. Yeah, well, it does. And that's another thing I, what I love about Pope Francis, the gospel mm -hmm. of encounter. Not reading yes. about something, not looking at a video thing, not, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, they get all this, you know, you got to encounter people. And that to yeah. me is the challenge that those yeah. of us, especially those of us who've been privileged and resourced, got, thank God, we can use our energies for justice. So, you're white, you're middle class, you've been educated. Well, great to use our energies for justice. Wake up and then join the community in the struggle for justice. Black Lives Matter. Join the people in the diocese that are going to visit in the prisons. Deacons are doing that more. It's making deacons real, I can tell you that. So, sister, let me ask you about that. You mentioned Black Lives Matter. You know, there's such an outcry. People assume Black Lives Matter is only always and everywhere just one little small organization and not a movement Damn. for an awakening to to calling for justice for Black people. How did you, as a religion, how I mean, the 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 phrase Black Lives Matter just rolls off your tongue. Oh, how were yeah. you able to get comfortable with that when I know you know so many who are believers just have a reaction of revulsion, you know, just when they hear the phrase Black Lives Matter. No, any anything that people hear where they're not deeply steeped in the suffering of people, they're going to go, oh, yeah, Black Lives Matter. Oh, yeah, I ought to get the vaccine. Oh, yeah. It's just so superficial. And mm. I knew when I was in St. Thomas and the people taught me, see, I learned in my deep soul their lives matter. 
and look mm-hmm. what's happening to them. They can't get educated. Look at what all the obstacles that are put in their way. And it's this fire then that starts to burn. That's why I call it River of Fire, because a fire mm-hmm. starts burning you because you are in, you're compassionate and you are in there with them and you feel yes. it with them. So then you yes. begin to act. See, and there, if you look at how much is still cerebral in our church of, you know, let's all now yeah. let's get a little panel together and let's talk about race. <laughs> all good as a starter. But boy, right. all those discussions and all don't lead us to move into groups, mixed groups of people doing stuff and tackling the, the problems of our city. That's the, point. the word of God is incarnate. You make Amen. the word come flesh. And that's what Pope Francis says. You got to encounter. It's that encounter that changes us. And that's why I wrote the book, Gloria. And you know what I'm doing now? I'm reaching out to universities that have the death penalty in their state. And I have these modules that I've built that what the students are going to do, I'll have an introductory Zoom with them. Then they're going to read Dead Man Walking, especially the first mm-hmm. four chapters that takes them through the crime, which is outrageous. Two innocent kids killed by these two men. But then I'm going to take them all the way through into the execution. And that's what story can do. And reading's important because you're quiet and it can be meditative. And then I'll meet with them at the end of their the module to talk in a a Zoom with questions and answers and and sharing with them, open-ended sharing. And I've begun to Mm. do it and it works really well because the stories are so powerful. And especially the story of Lloyd LeBlanc whose son David was killed by Patrick Sonia and his brother. And this mm-hmm. father, who loved this son, and is brought to the morgue to identify David, who was so alive, and then after that Friday night, terrible crime. Yeah. These yes. two teenage kids shot in the back of the head, and he's looking down at his dead son. And what's rising up in Lloyd LeBlanc, it's just from childhood, it's just our father who art in heaven over the body mm. of the son. And he mm. comes to the words. And forgive us as we forgive those. And he, mm. when he told me the story, he said, Sister, I wasn't there. I couldn't forgive him any more than I wanted to kill him and his brother. Yeah. But his experience of redemption was he began to recognize what the anger was doing inside him. And he taught me forgiveness. That the, Even look at the word. It means to give before. It means mm. to not let yourself be overcome with the hatred so that then you lose your life too. And yeah. his story is in this module too, in Dead Man Walking, that I walked through with the young people. Because part of the journey for the death penalty and actually the criminal justice system is we got to be in touch with the outrage we feel when innocent people have crimes done against them. But we can't stop yeah. there though. Then we got to move into now, what does it mean for us as a community, as a society, to imitate that violence and to do to them what they did to their victims? You got to bring them through that, though, and it's hard. It takes some navigating. It is very hard. It is very hard, especially when you see the brutality done to these young, innocent people, how vengeance, our desire for vengeance rises up in us and can consume us. That we are consumed by vengeance and that's life destroying. And I don't, you know, that's very hard to grapple with. It's also very hard, I think, to deal with, you know, the emotional response, which is normal, right? Yeah. But then I love something early in your book where you said Christianity is an adult religion. 
right? We are not just consumed by our emotions as children are. We have to grapple and we have to master it and we have to come out on the other side of it. And that that takes time. Yeah. But sure. also I think it takes community, sister, because there has to be somebody helping us and holding yeah, us no, no, when right. we just want to explode, right? right? And I think that's also important in what you say. You didn't look away from the victims' families. No, but he taught me. See, I had done it wrong. Right. The other thing, Tim Robbins, well, my editor actually helped me shape Dead Man Walking. You never would have heard of that book, okay? <laughs> I, I had two big mistakes in the first draft. And it was that I didn't tackle seriously what the victims had suffered. I went right to the human rights of the person. And he said, Mm. nobody's going to read your book. You're not dealing with the crime. If you don't talk about those two kids being killed in cold blood in the first 10 pages of this book, nobody's going to read this book. And then he said, you're letting Mm -hmm. yourself off kind of easy that you didn't reach out to the victim's family. He said they were angry. They were upset. And you didn't want to give them further pain. He said it was cowardice, wasn't it? You were scared, weren't oh. you? And so okay. then when I did reach out and Lloyd LeBlanc taught me this vengeance thing you're talking about. See, people yeah. never say they're doing vengeance. They call it redemptive violence. They they deserve what they get. Don't talk about their human rights. Look what they do to their victim. Because all of us yeah. as human beings try to frame what we do in some kind of morally acceptable way. I'm not a vengeful prosecutor. I'm getting justice for the victim's family. Lloyd yeah. LeBlanc put it when the anger was just tearing him up and he's snapping at Yola's wife and making her cry. And finally, he put his hand out, Lori, put his hand out like stop like this and just said, then I said, uh-uh, they kill my boy, but I'm not going to let him kill me. Oof. And he started walking down the Jesus road and asked Jesus to help him. He's the hero of Dead Man Walking. It's not me. I'm the storyteller. And I made a lot of mistakes. Oh, that was was powerful. That was powerful when he started to see. And I reached out to Jesus. Mm. You know, being from Charleston, South Carolina, talking about death penalty, and when those people at Mother Emanuel Church were murdered during Bible study by that young man who was given a death sentence, I have to say, I was thinking about, you know, who does this to people? that have been nice to him and invited him into the Bible study and they were extending the Lord's hands to him and he repaid them by murdering them. Old women, a few younger men, but who does that? Then I started to think, what is just for him? And how do we deal with these kind of ugly, really evil outbursts? And then I started to think, it can't be that we kill him. No, It can't be that we kill him. And that's a hard, I'm a, a, from personal experience, that's a hard thing. I knew people that went to Mother Manuel Church. I, I mean, I go by really? Man, Mother Manuel every time I'm home. And also in the trial, it came out, by the way, that on his list of churches that he looked at for killing Black people was my home parish, St. Patrick's. No kidding. In Charleston, South Carolina. That came out during the trial. And all of us Black Catholics that I knew, we were like, my Lord, are we safe anywhere? Yeah, really. And so that personal thing, but yet, even though you know you're just so like caught up in it, but the answer isn't to execute him. That is a hard place to arrive to, sister. But it's possible. People can arrive at it, and we are shutting the death penalty down in this country. That's right. Virginia shut it down. We are down now in 2019 when people were given the option in the question: Are you for the death penalty or for a life sentence? We had over 50% choosing life because we see it doesn't work. You got to, again, just like we said in the beginning, there's positive movement. The kingdom of God, these little sprouts are coming up on the death penalty. 
it's boiled down now to just a handful of prosecutors in this country and the states that are going for death. In Oklahoma, the prosecutor, the attorney general just announced they're going to kill seven more people. They are in a mess. Their whole system and protocol of killing people, they were using the wrong drugs because I got involved yeah. with the Richard Glossop case and all that got exposed. Oh, yeah. How did he do that? Well, because he could, and it's going to help him in some way politically. But look at that decision. We're going to kill seven more people. With all the dying from COVID, with all the dying from the climate change, and the, you're going to decide to go kill people? What does it say about us? But the people are catching on. And now, with the change in the Catholic teaching, you can't have bishops anymore, you know, who stand up and say, oh, there are instances where the death penalty is acceptable. You can't have priests. But you know what? When you change a catechism, you know what you change in our glory? You change in a document. And we got to get to hearts and minds. It's always going to be more about changing a document. Sister, one of the things that I always thought was the case is especially when Pope John Paul II talked about it, St. John Paul II, he's like, there's no need for it. We can keep society safe without killing these people, right? Because it used to be the argument was we had recourse to it to keep society safe, but we have means, especially in the United States, to keep society safe. We don't have to resort to killing a person to keep them safe. We can keep them in prison. I got to tell you something about St. Pope John Paul II because I had a direct Uh dialogue with him. And in that, yeah, through Joseph Odell, it's a story in Death of Innocence. And my letter to John Paul is in there directly, every Mm -hmm. word. He had written in his encyclical, The Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae. He had taken the death penalty to the edge. He had said, we have just what you said. We have ways of keeping people safe. But he had left in it a great big old loophole. And when you have a chance... When you're dialoguing with a pope like you're dialoguing with anybody, what you see and you know not to be true, you got to speak it. And I said, Your Holiness, when I read your encyclical, uh, you talked about the inviolable dignity of human life. But then I came to that sentence where you said, but in cases of absolute necessity, the state can execute. And I said, all of it then, any DA who wants a death penalty will say it's an absolute necessity because they are the deciders of the criteria. And that is going to be quoted for death. And sure enough, our district attorney, Harry Connick Sr. in New Orleans, real Catholic man, he holds up the Pope's encyclical and said, we can't get enough death penalties here in New Orleans. He didn't give the real reason because you can't get all the black people off the jury. But he said, we can't get Mm. enough death penalties in New Orleans and everyone that we get is an absolute necessity. And he quoted a post encyclical. And I was saying, we got to cut out the loopholes. It's got to be a principle in no circumstances. Can you ever say that the state has a right to take life? Pope John Paul did pave the way, though, when he was in St. Louis. And he gave a very public talk there. Two years after he had written this encyclical, he said the death penalty, no, he gave all the pro-life issues that most Catholics are used to hearing, no to abortion, no to euthanasia, no yeah. to, and then he said, and no to the death penalty because it's cruel. We don't have a Supreme Court yet. 
that can acknowledge and recognize that to put a person in a cell for 20 years and to take them out and kill them is an act of cruelty. They don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. They do with their little legal stuff of how their originalism or whatever with the Constitution or whatever. But Pope John Paul nailed it, and he said, because it's cruel and unnecessary. And in my letter to might said, Your Holiness, I keep meeting Catholics who say they're pro-life. Well, it ends up they're pro-innocent life, but they're not pro-guilty life. Right, right. And Pope John Paul also said in St. Louis, even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. You cannot execute someone with dignity. You cannot shackle them and render them defenseless and say this is a dignified death. So he paved the way for Pope Francis. So, sister, you touched on something, and it came very clearly through to me during George Floyd's murder, watching it, seeing it, and then seeing the response, the anti-gospel response, where some people started to say, well, he did this in his past, and he did that. And what they were trying to do is make us believe that his murder is okay because he wasn't, quote unquote, a good person because he had a criminal background and all this stuff. And I said, if that ain't the anti-gospel, and so many people were just sucking that up hook, line, and sinker. And I was like, that's the problem. The devil will whisper in our ears everything he can to make us not connect with members of our human family because they're not quote unquote perfect. I said, well, that's the, if that is the criteria, then God have mercy on all of us because none of us are perfect. And that's when I started to see some missing in our teaching about the dignity of the human person in the church. If we are not emphasizing that it's every person, right? No matter. Even those who have committed crime, even those we don't like, even that's what we're missing. Because I do remember quite a bit in talking about abortion, it it was the emphasis on the innocence of the child, which is correct, which is right and all that. But the innocence of the child, the innocence thing seemed to then go through everything else once the person was born. That if you weren't this innocent, likable, lovable human person, then you know what? You've got what's coming to you. Yeah. Right? And that's that's precisely opposite of what we believe. And then I see how that has just torn us up. But that's been the rhetoric and the thinking behind the death penalty. There are some acts that human beings do, or there are some people who by their very character and the nature of who they are, that we must kill them for justice Mm. because we couldn't put them in prison. They'll kill other inmates. They'll kill guards. This is what we have to do. We always try to justify or put in a framework that what we're doing is the right thing and necessary. We got to fight fire with fire. It's the only language they understand. Maybe that threat that we're going to kill you if you kill somebody will will keep them from killing. And then the other thing is, look how religions use to uphold it. I watched the head of the district attorneys of Louisiana when there was a judiciary meeting when we had filed a bill to abolish the death penalty. And he walked into that meeting to speak for the death penalty with the Bible, with the words of Jesus. And he said, as Jesus said, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. He lived by the sword. So you try to justify and you try to get the divine sanction in what you're doing. Religion is, I mean, it's one of the things that grieves me the most. And that I got to, you know, probably I think 
Gloria, my next book is going to be about getting Jesus right. I just see how religion is mm. used. I watched Jeff Sessions when he was the attorney general. He's trying to justify separating those babies from their parents at the border. You know what he quoted? Yeah. You know what he quoted? What? No, Romans 13. Obey civil authority because that's the authority of God. These parents coming, <laughs> they want to break the law and bring their kids over here. It's on them that we separate them. And wow. Justice Scalia, Catholic Supreme Court Justice Scalia would quote Romans 13 to just say that's why the death penalty. This is God's right. wrath on people. And we are the civil servants who carry it out. And let me tell you what, Miss Gloria, it's tricky business mm. when you got these human agents saying, I'm going to tell you what God thinks. When right. we interpret God to each other. Right. Tricky, tricky. Well, it's always interesting if we interpret God in a way that makes it easier for us, right? Yeah. Right. It's a harder thing to love when people have done horrible things, right? It's a that's harder right. thing. And I, I think that's what the gospel always calls us to do, to try to love as Jesus loved, not as we do. But, and that's the challenge of Jesus. Ain't it? Isn't it? To love your enemies, to pray. Indeed. That's the Lloyd LeBlanc heart. He killed my boys, but I'm not going to let him kill me. Not to let yeah. that anger take over us, you know? And the more yes. unsure we yes. are of ourselves, we're, we're very porous to be influenced by that. I mean, Jesus, yeah. why would he say, pray for those who persecute you? Love your enemies. Why would he say that? It's not about, in a way, it's like saving your own life. That a deeply, a person spiritually deep who knows that love is what life is about. And that when you are in crisis and you've been hurt or someone you love has been hurt, that's real crisis. And how we respond, and that is when we get on our knees, and that is when we pray, and that is when we meet with community, that we yeah. can make an option for restorative justice, not retaliatory. Yes. And honestly, you know what, Glory? what I've learned about all these poor victims' families waiting for their so-called justice, 20 years? Yeah while it's yeah. going through the legal system to get their moment. They get to sit on the front row and watch as the state kills the one who killed their loved one. And just look at that, that you're going to witness this violence and that's going to heal the human heart. What a lie that is. Yeah, it's a lie. It doesn't. It doesn't. Well, one last thing I'm going to say just for our listeners, because people sometimes, I think, falsely equate Abolishing the death penalty means that we are just these passive doormats. And it's not it. I will say, I think some of the most active contending with my inner spirit is in the face of injustice. Yeah. You know, the flesh wants me to bust somebody in the mouth, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I have to contend with that and remember what the Lord is telling me. And so there is an active mastering of my emotion and of my reaction. And what I have to put it through is the lens of love that Christ has offered me. And so for everybody thinking, oh, you just, no, it is an active encounter with Jesus and with your own broken self to respond, to try to respond in the way that Jesus wills for us to respond to our enemies. No, and so right. I want people to think about that. It's not asking you to be quote unquote weak or passive. It's actually asking you to very much contend with your inner man. You mentioned that in the book, to really contend with your inner self right. in the light of what Jesus has invited us, what Jesus has commanded us, what Jesus has shown us how right. we ought to love. And you know what, Gloria? You can't just do that sitting in your little prayer chair and by you sure yourself. Can. The community you sure we are part of, like you and me talking right now and getting this mm -hmm. out to people, the community we are part of that we share with, we grow with, 
you can't be in isolation. You, this individual little person, I got to deal with my emotions. I can't smack him upside the head. <laughs> but what community are you with? Mm-hmm. Who's working the change? Yes. Who are you with? What are you working for in your life? Because if you're not, it's an individual moment. Oh, yeah, I got to be virtuous. Okay, I got to. It's more than that. It's what Absolutely. Pope Francis says, the gospel of encounter and that field hospital out there where society is suffering and to be a part of it. You should be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. <laughs> right? Amen, we sister. All right, sister, this has been wonderful talking with you. I feel like I'm speaking to a kindred spirit just from that Southern extrovert food loving sister <laughs> that you are. I was like, oh, I could totally I mean, relate to this. How many meals Jesus ate with people? Cajuns know right? how to do that. We know how to I do was that. like, I was like, they liked a little barbecue. They were kicking that fish by the side. <laughs> I was like, yeah, black people can relate to that. We got a little barbecue going. Talk to you. I'm Same so glad we here. Up. Thank you so much, Sister Helen Prejean. I can't wait for the opera to come out. I think that's great. I can't wait to go hear this opera for Dead Man Walking. Thank you for all that you do and continue to do and encouraging us to look Jesus in the face in the person of the oppressed, those on the sidelines, the marginalized, the dispossessed. We need that. Thank you so much, sister. And thank you, America Media, a great source (laughs) of inspiration and help for all of us. Glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Amen. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and joining with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share an episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.